Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this morning, we're talking about... Um, now, there are five, five doctrines that grew out of the Reformation. Um, there is uh, Scripture alone, which we're talking about this morning. And there's faith alone, and grace alone, and Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. And you could approach these doctrines in any particular order. But there is a logical consistency with starting from Scripture as the source and foundation of all the other doctrines. Some people would say, well, you should start with grace, and we could have done that, or you could start with Christ. We could have done that. But traditionally, Scripture is kind of the starting block that launches us forward into all of these ideas because everything we know about God, everything we know about Jesus and ourselves comes from the Word of God. So if you think about knowledge this way, that God has given humanity knowledge through nature and the, and the created order, we would call that uh, natural revelation, but God has specifically revealed himself, who he is and who we are in his eyes from special revelation, or we call that the word of God. It is God's special revelation to humanity that reveals his, himself, his nature, and the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. So we're starting this morning with the doctrine of sola scriptura in Latin, or scripture alone. Originally, there were only three solas. There was scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. And then later on, they added two more, which was Christ alone and for the glory of God alone. Now, there may be some confusion about what that means. What does that mean, scripture alone? Should we not read any other books besides the Bible? Yes, no. We'll talk about that in our sermon this morning, but we're going to start... In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10, and we're going to read through chapter 4, um, verse 8. So hear the word of God. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy that is, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded and endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, now we thank you for your holy word delivered to us as a gift. How gracious you are that you have revealed your very mind and heart to us through the word, the scriptures, as Paul calls them, the sacred writings. We pray now that you would open our hearts and minds that we would be able to grasp this great doctrine that scripture alone is the foundation of all of our understanding of faith and truth and life. Christ's name we pray, amen. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a phrase that most Christians know and have heard uh, their entire walk with the Lord, or if you're like me, I've heard it my entire life. We used to sing a little song in church, I won't sing it now, but you can in your head hum the tune. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's woefully inadequate as an articulation of what it means to know Jesus Christ, but in some ways, it's all you ever need to know. That Jesus loves you, and you know this because the Bible tells you. Well, that statement is predicated on a view of the Bible that grew out of the Reformation, and that doctrine that it's predicated on is the doctrine we're talking about this morning called Scripture alone, in Latin, sola scriptura. You don't have to remember that, but scripture alone. And scripture alone has to do with the sufficiency of scripture as our supreme authority in all spiritual matters. It doesn't mean we don't read other books. Christians and Christian leaders and pastors and theologians from the very first century wrote books to explain what they thought scripture meant that is necessary, that is important, that is required. I myself, along with reading the Bible every week, are reading other books to help me understand the Bible because the Bible does not always yield up its truths so easily. It's important for us to reflect on what the Bible means. Sometimes the Bible will say one plus one plus one. It doesn't say three, but it's legitimate for us to say, well, one plus one plus one is three even though the Bible doesn't exactly say that. So what we mean by Scripture alone is not that the Bible is the only book we can read and all other books are somehow off limits. It just means that the Bible takes a precedence over everything else in a special way because it comes from God. There is a quote from our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that says, Um, that the supreme judge, it was in your bulletin this morning, and I read it in the greeting, that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of counsels and opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentence 
we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Now, this statement was written in the 1640s, some 130 years after the Reformation, after 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his, the 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg. You might not know what that's about, but there was some disputes. There were some things going on in Martin Luther's day, some 500 years ago. And as he read the Bible, as a, as a Greek professor, a seminary professor, a priest, a monk, a scholar in the Bible, he said, wait a minute, something's not lining up here. He read the Word of God, and he realized that the church had practices that just didn't square with God's Word. There was an issue of authority, an issue of where the church was getting its authority from. Creeds and confessions and all of those things are to be embraced, but none of those things take the place, the supreme place of the Word of God, and that's part of what the Reformation was all about. So this doctrine that Scripture alone is the source of authority for how we understand our faith in God was lost for many years. The medieval period of the church kind of lost this doctrine. It got clouded. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, and I don't want to bore you to death with all of the details, but suffice to say that a lot of people couldn't read, a lot of people didn't understand how to read Latin, and people were illiterate, and so the church had made it their cause to articulate God's word to them, but it got to the point where they became, they monopolized the text. You know, monopolized the text, meaning that, that they were the only ones who could access it. Now, something happened in the 14th century. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to give us some background so we understand what we're talking about. In the 14th century, something happened called the Renaissance. Many of you have heard of the Renaissance. The Renaissance was this uh, um, uh, return back to ancient sources for art and all of these, and art and education and politics. And they were reading Plato and Homer and all these different things. And it was a return to the sources and the literary sources. In fact, um, I think it's the next slide. Um, return to literary sources was called, during the, the Renaissance, ad fontes, or back to the sources, back to the original literature. And this is the context from which the Reformation sprang. There was a return to the ancient wisdom to shed light on all of humanity's dealings in art and politics and law, but especially, supremely, the Bible. And so the Reformation didn't spring in a vacuum, didn't, didn't come out of a vacuum. There, was, there were things happening in the world that God sovereignly put into place that this time would come about to recapture and recover the source of spiritual and doctrinal authority. The church had tradition. There was nothing wrong with tradition. And tradition's good. We like tradition. Tradition isn't something that we turn our nose up at, but tradition, councils, creeds, whenever those things interrupt God's pure holy word, then there's something to be worried about. So the problem was that sometimes tradition changed. Church councils sometimes contradicted themselves. Opinions of different theologians disagreed with one another sometimes on key issues of the faith. And to make matters worse, as I had mentioned just a minute ago, the church, as I said, monopolized the text of Scripture. And all of this was before the printing press, 
So you couldn't just go buy, go, up, go buy a Bible from the local Christian bookstore. Didn't work that way. And so uh, a guy like Martin Luther, when he walked into you know, his seminary office, he had you know, scrolls and you know, big parchments or whatever it was he carried. It certainly wasn't a nice book like this. Isn't it just amazing? You can just get all 66 books of the Bible in this nice little prepackaged soft leather book anywhere. You just get it anywhere. And not only that, but, you know, we, we have it right here. You know, we have it on your phone. It's just amazing. But it wasn't always like that. The Bible was hard to get your hands on. So the first century, similarly to the time of the Reformation, there was also a crisis of Scripture. We just read Paul's words to Timothy, the young pastor, And there was also a crisis of the word of God in the first century because as the apostles are dying off, there is a new generation of church leaders getting ready to take over, getting ready to carry the baton forward. For those of you that have ever run track or watched track and field, you know how it is in the relay race. They hand the baton off and the runner is like this and they, it's like this, they grab the baton I ran track and field as a kid. I was very slow. In fact, in fact, I think I'm faster now than I was as a kid. But there was this new generation of Christian leaders and pastors being raised up, and Timothy was one of them, and there was a crisis in the first century because the survival of the church was not secure. There was also this idea that the church might go extinct, that the church may not survive And Paul focuses on this very one thing, which is the word of God. He tells Timothy, essentially, that his ministry going forward, this is Timothy, the young pastor, his ministry is to focus, above all other things, on the word of God. Because in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament is the revelation of the truth of the gospel message. In the word of God and nowhere else was the revelation of the truth of the gospel, verses 14 and 15. Look with me. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood, in the Greek word, the word literally is from infancy, You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For Paul, who writes this to Timothy, everything depends on Scripture. Everything depends on Scripture. All truth that is necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. And this is what makes the Bible so amazing. Is God has revealed his holy standard of what it means to please him, what it means to live a life that is acceptable to God, what God has done for us and who he is. And the reason this is so special is because it's not like karma. So why do, why do, why do, why do there so many people we run into say, reference karma. Well, in some sense, it's a very good thing because we all long for justice, right? 
So when you hear people say, well, it's karma coming back around or karma will get them in the end, there's this longing and this desire, well, that there's justice in the world. And that's kind of what the idea of karma gets at. The cruel part about karma is you don't know what the rules are of karma. It hasn't been revealed to us. There is no document, the karma document, saying, do this, 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 and that, and these good things will happen. It's kind of just left up to chance. But what God has done in his word is revealed to us, is revealed to us his holy standards, revealed to us his very nature and his very character, so that we're not left in the dark. We know exactly what God requires. We know exactly the kind of things that, you know, cause us to sow wickedness and reap evil back. We know exactly the kind of deeds that we can commit that will reap a harvest of goodness back to us. I'm primarily talking about God's judgment and God's love. So if you want to know what the standards are, what the cosmic standards are, God's commands, what God expects, just open your Bible. Want to know what God says about marriage? Loving your neighbor, money, friendship, how to treat immigrants, hospitality? Open your Bible. God's design for human flourishing and happiness? Open your Bible. You want to know the things that bring heartache to human beings? The wickedness that pervades our heart and causes people to go to war with one another and hate each other? Open your Bible. And this realization that that Paul shares with Timothy that the scriptures are the bedrock of all that he's to do in ministry is the same realization that Martin Luther came to when he was challenged, when he challenged the church's errors, those 95 theses. Theses. I don't know how you really pronounce that. 95 theses. He nails a piece of paper on the door of the church in Wittenberg hoping to get a conversation with the Pope, because surely the Pope would read this and say, oh, gee, Martin, thanks. Thanks for pointing these things out. You know, they had kind of slipped right by me. That's what Martin Luther was hoping for. He figured, well, certainly I'll just point out that there are some things going on that are not consistent with the Word of God, and surely the Pope and the religious authorities and the church will be happy, and we could just have a dialogue. Well, that didn't happen because it was seen as a very challenge to the authority of the medieval church at that time. And Martin Luther was called to account for the things he wrote and the things that he challenged the church on at a place called the Diet of Worms. And he, he says this, this is my, one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, when he's asked to recant, he says, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. What is your conscience held captive by this morning? Can you say that with Martin Luther? Can we say that, that our conscience is held captive by the word of God? Maybe we think the Bible's an okay book. There's some things in there we like, some things in there we don't like, some things in there that are weird, some things in there that, well, surely they can apply to us today. Some of that's true. Some things don't apply to us today. Some of those things in the Bible are contextually bound to the times that they're written in, and, and some other things aren't. Some other things universally apply to all human beings. But is that what we can say? Can we say our conscience is held captive by the word of God? 
If not, what is your conscience held captive by? Is it whatever flight of fancy, whatever you know, kind of passing um, ideas you know, uh, are, are present today, popular today? See, at one time in America, you paid very little price for holding to Scripture, but increasingly there's a price to pay. And Paul writes this to Timothy in the context of persecution of the early church. As the gospel message starts to spread, it starts to ruffle a lot of feathers. People don't like it, especially in the pagan world. Pagan world where people worship different gods, they have different moral systems. They don't like the encroachment of the gospel message because it declares something that rubs up against them in a way that that causes a visceral reaction. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, stand up against the persecution of this evil age. And he boils down, just like Martin Luther did, he boils down the firmness of his standing to a steadfastness and holding fast to the word of God. Hold to the word of God is what Paul tells Timothy. See, our hearts can be deceitful and even unworthy, but even this can't overturn God's promises in Scripture. Scripture is where God speaks to us, and God is true to his word. We're liars. Men are liars. But God is true. The Bible says, let God be true and let every man be a liar. Scripture communicates to us not only the love, but the promises of God. God's promises for us. Luther thought that Scripture not only pointed to God, but gave us the very thing it pointed to. Scripture was like a sacrament. So the sacraments point to something, but also confer to us the very thing it points to. And Scripture was not only pointing to God, but it was giving us God. So it'd be wrong for us to think about the Bible as a book simply about God. It is a book that in many ways delivers God to us. As we read through the pages of Scripture and through the verses and the different books and all of its stories and the Bible's theology and all of these different things, we're not just learning about God. In some ways, God himself is imparting himself to us through the pages of Holy Scripture. After we read a passage or a text or a chapter or an entire book of the Bible, we're different. We're changed by it. It's an experience because we come into contact not only with the words of God, but God himself through Scripture. Verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The word there in the original language means spirit-breathed. There is no phrase like this in all or any ancient Greek literature. A lot of language that the Bible uses in the, during its time is found in extra-biblical sources. It's common, but this is a word breathed out by God or God-breathed that is unique. And it's the idea that God himself is part of the process of what the writers did. Um... 1 Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. And so one of the first things we ought to recognize, we should recognize, and this makes all the difference in the world, is that the Bible, versus all of those other ancient texts being recovered during this time, the Bible is not the product of man. The Bible is the product of God. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible comes from God. The Bible comes from God. It's breathed out by God, not by men. It's inspired by God. It's the product of God. In some ways, it's written by God. It's breathed out by God. Now, since we're talking about the Bible, one of the things you're likely to encounter is you're likely to encounter arguments that say people, good people, who say things like, well, you know, the Bible's okay, but it's, you know, it's... It contradicts itself. The Bible's okay, but it's just the work of human beings, like any other book. And why should we hold to this ancient document that doesn't have anything to do with us? But I want to show you that there are three views of inspiration. God breathed. Another way to say that is it's inspired by God. The Bible is inspired by God. And the first view is that the Bible of limited inspiration The Bible contains the word of God, but is not itself the very words of God. In other words, somewhere in the matrix of reading the Bible, you come in contact with nuggets of truth that are the word of God. But the Bible itself is not the word of God. That's view one. View two is the dictation theory, that the writers were nothing more than human stenographers. This is the Islamic view of how the Quran came into being, that they just listened to what Allah said and wrote down word for word. Now, sometimes that is true when God says, write these things. So sometimes the writers of the Bible are stenographers. But then there's the view that we believe that especially grew out of the Reformation, and that's called the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture, which is that each word, not just the overarching ideas or concepts, was meaningful, meaningful chosen under the superintendence of the Spirit of God. So the human writers wrote as they were inspired. They were their thoughts. They weren't automatons. They weren't robots writing God was forcing their hand. But God, through the supervision of the Holy Spirit, was causing them to write what he wanted them to write. And they truly expressed the scriptures in their own ways of writing and speaking, but in a way that they said exactly what God wanted them to say. And because of this fact, that the human writers were not automatons or under a trance or something like that when they wrote, but they wrote under God's leading and direction, because of that, verse 16, the Bible, the scriptures are profitable for teaching. Scripture is profitable for us. We're increased by it. We're blessed by it. We profit from scripture. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction, and for training in righteousness. And in this way, the word of God is like the words of a mother with a newborn infant. When a child is born, it starts to grow, and primarily its growth is not just physical, but there is an emotional and intellectual and even spiritual process that's happening as that child is looking to the mouth of its mother every day. It looks to mom and her words of instruction, her constant words of comfort and wooing. 
sometimes rebuke. That mother is constantly letting that child know through her words that that child is loved. And every time she's scared, she looks into mama's face and hears the words saying, I love you. It's going to be okay. You're beautiful. You can do it. That's it, baby. Or don't do that. Do this instead. Constantly looking to mom's words as that child is nurtured in her mother's love and instruction. And the word of God is like that for us. We look to the word of God to hear the words of God to say, I love you. You're beautiful. I accept you. Sometimes reproving and correcting us, saying, don't do that. That's not good. God's commands. We said a few weeks back that God's commands are all love. Like a mother shouting at her daughter or her son who's two years old, running out into the street saying, stop. And that child hears that loud voice and gets scared and maybe starts to cry. Because at the moment, the child doesn't understand that mom actually wants to prevent them from harm and danger. It's only until later on as that child grows and matures that they recognize that those commands, those hard words, those words that seem hard to grasp really flow out of mom's love. God's commands are all love. Whether God says go or stop or yells, it's all from God's love. The word of God is God's love to us, communicating Not only what we should think about God, but who God is. The very nature of God. God reveals himself to us in his word. And we know we're his children. And he loves us through that word. And in this way, we don't so much interpret scripture as scripture interprets us. Scripture figures this out. Scripture tells us who we are and what we are. As we figure ourselves out apart from the word of God, there's always something missing. It's always like a missing dimension of our lives when we go through life void of the knowledge of God's word because in the word of God, we find out why we tick, why we do the things we do. I once heard someone say that if there was no Bible, someone would have to invent it to make sense of the world. Scripture makes sense of not only the world, but it makes sense of us. Why we do what we do, who we are. Why there's a longing in our hearts for something that we just can't fill until we surrender to Jesus Christ. The Bible interprets us, tells us who we are, what we are. But most importantly, the Bible tells us who we are in Christ. I recently went through a stack of greeting cards so, been married for 25 years. I've got four children, our oldest to the youngest, separated by 10 years. So, I've got stacks of greeting cards from Father's Day, birthday, and Christmas, and, you know, all of these different things. And at some point, right, you have to decide which one of those, you, you can't keep them all. You just can't, you know. You do your spring cleaning, and it just feels bad, but you got to do it. You just got to throw some away. But as I went through that stack of cards, some of them perfectly illustrated and articulated the relationship that I have with my wife and my children. There were messages, not only the printed message, but the things that they wrote in were so perfect. 
And my wife knows this. Some of those cards, I've got at least one of them right now pinned up on the wall as a reminder of my children's love for me. I, I threw a lot of them away, sorry. But I kept the most important ones, the ones that tell me who I am, the ones that tell me when I doubt myself that I'm a loving father, the ones that tell me when I'm second-guessing my ability as a husband that you're a good man, those things, the ones that remind me of the years we've spent together and the times we've, we've shared together that touch my heart and reach me when I'm doubting. I wake up in the morning and I look up on the wall and I'll read this message from my daughter about who I am. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It tells us what God thinks of us and who we are in Him and how important we are to Him and that God sent His own Son to die in our place because He loved us that much. And yes, He did sacrifice His own Son for us. Raised Him from the dead back to life But even that moment of relational rupture between the Father and the Son as a demonstration of how much He loved us, you can't read the Word of God, you can't read Scripture for more than a few pages without recognizing that this God is a God of love. That this God is a God of grace. That this God is a God who sacrifices for you and for me. That's why... More than any other document, any, any other book, any written counsel, any creed, any theology from anyone else, the Bible alone stands head and shoulders above everything else that has ever been written as a supreme communication of God's character and love for humanity. We don't come in here every week just to talk about the Bible because that's just kind of what Christians do. We're kind of slavishly bound to some ancient book. In the pages of Scripture, we find the very nature, character, and love of Almighty God. And that's why we do this every week, because we're not only enriched by it, we grow by it. We're renewed in it. We hear God's words like a parent of comfort and challenge, training, words of soft words of love and affirmation, and then other words of rebuke. We need that. You need that. I need that. Let's pray.